This is the Visible Hand. My name is Jordi Blanc My guest today is David Silver, an assistant professor of economics and public affairs at Princeton University. Today we are going to talk about his paper, A Haste or Waste Peer Pressure and Productivity in the Emergency Department, which was published in 2020 at the Review of Economic Studies. David, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So David, a large uh, body of work in uh, labor economics and organizational economics has been uh, interested in identifying peer effects. That is, the increase or decrease in performance by an agent when her peers are of a particular type. So in this paper, you use the estimation of peer effects, but not necessarily or at least exclusively as a question of interest per se, but instead as an instrument to study something else, which is the effect of increased care in emergency room settings on medical outcomes. And you start the paper by saying that this relation between amount of care and medical outcomes is an important one and one that has been understudied. Can you start by telling us why is this question important and what have been the challenges in estimating this relation? Yeah, sure. I guess I wouldn't say it's been understudied. It's definitely been studied a lot. It's a very hot and important topic. It's been so for probably decades in the healthcare literature. I would say it's kind of like chapter one of the handbook of health economics kind of question. The main way that people have approached understanding this or sort of some of the main motivating facts and stylized facts in the literature leverage or examine cross-sectional differences in choices. So treatment choices and spending across providers, across regions. There's this famous sort of body of work in the Dartmouth Atlas that sort of shows that there's tons of cross-sectional variation in the United States in particular in various types of medical spending that seems to be uncorrelated with outcomes. And so that body of work has motivated a lot of follow-up work to better understand whether that means that we are on what people call the flat of the curve, where all this extra spending in places or among providers who are high spenders is just wasteful, or if there's something else going on, which is what I'm trying to sort of contribute to in, in this paper, where maybe those providers or those places where spending is really high are like that for some reason that's sort of related to their productivity or skills um, or or something else. Uh, and so, so there's been a good amount of work on that in the last, say, 15 years in the economics literature to try to discern whether it's one thing or another. So whether it's sort of this, uh, this flat of the curve story or whether there's something else more nuanced going on that we're not really understanding from these cross-sectional relationships. So the stylized fact is that there are some doctors or some hospitals or some places that spend much more on medical care than others, but they do not seem to be achieving better outcomes. And this is a a cross-sectional relation. What I would want to do in that case is to have like two patients that come through my room and then flip a coin. And if I get heads, I give a lot of uh, medical care to one of them. And if I get tails, not so much. And then I just measure experimentally the the results of this. Obviously, for ethical reasons, this cannot be done, at least as such. But have there been studies that use uh, approximations to these like uh, ideal experimental uh, variations? There's a lot of uh, a lot of work on understanding provider choices and looking at sort of determinants of provider choices in sort of interesting ways. So you know, how do providers change their behavior after they're litigated in a malpractice case, something like that. So, you know, we see there's a there's a, a nice paper by Itai Luri, I believe, who looks at sort of C-section rates 
pre and post a litigation claim and finds that after somebody's accused of malpractice, they increase their C-section rate a lot and then tries to link that to outcomes. So does that increase in C-section rates lead to better outcomes? Those kind of things, there's, a, I think, a fair number of papers that are kind of leveraging those sort of changes, those discrete changes coming from sort of external events um, to look at whether to get like a first stage for, you know, spending. And really they usually sort of ha- spend a lot of time just exploring that first stage and not really tying it to outcomes. I think a big reason for that is it's often very hard to study outcomes in healthcare. And it's often hard to figure out what like the right outcome is to, to put on the, the left-hand side of, a, of, a, of an IV regression. Like in my paper, you could, you could imagine that, you know, a lot of studies rely on things like revisit rates. Those, you know, there's some debate sometimes about whether those are, whether revisits are always bad or always good. So eventually we always kind of come back to this idea that putting mortality on the left-hand side is like the cleanest thing to do. But in most cases, in most clinical settings, mortality is luckily not a uh, super relevant outcome. And so but the, the, the flip side of that is that it's, it's not really something that we can use to measure quality in a lot of cases. So I think, yeah, there's definitely a lot of work that looks at things that tweak provider behavior. Oftentimes it's hard. It's maybe the goal of the paper is not really to then understand how those tweaks, like really hammer home how those tweaks change downstream outcomes of, of patients. Very good. So as you say, out of cross-section evidence on the relation between the intensity of care and medical outcomes that could be affected by selection or not, some effort in understanding sources of variation of a intensity of, of treatment, but maybe not tying it so much to outcomes. The, I live in, in England and therefore my medical is provided by the NHS. I feel that sometimes the NHS approximates this experimental ideal in which <laughs> sometimes they seem to be reacting to patients in a completely random way. Your study is not about the UK, it's instead about the US. Can you give us the intuition of the uh, shifter or instrument or source of external variation that you use to estimate this relation? Absolutely. Yeah. So as you as you nicely sort of described at the beginning, there's a sort of a non-standard peer effects paper where I'm using, so in, in the peer effects literature in, in labor and in management economics, there's a, a lot of interest in just understanding how workers interact in the workplace, how social interactions matter for productivity on a given shift. Maybe there's also an interest in understanding things like knowledge spillovers, which are sort of more long-term peer effects. So there's a couple of literatures going on there. I'm focused on the former, which is more this sort of idea that who you're working with at a given time can really influence the way that you're, so how much effort you're putting forth, either through sort of moral hazard concerns. So, you know, imagine that you're working with your department chair on a particular day. Uh, Maybe you want to put in a little bit more effort to show that you're a good worker relative to when you're working with somebody who's below you in the hierarchy, or just because you're competitive. I think a lot of settings in particular, the setting that I'm studying, which is emergency care. I know a few emergency care physicians and they tend to be very competitive people. If if they are paired up with on a, a particular day, a particular shift with somebody who is also pretty competitive, they might get into sort of a mindset of like, I'm going to beat you. I'm going to get more patients through the ER than you are. And so at the end of the day, I can have a little bit of a one up on you. The quasi experiment that I'm kind of leveraging is using the nature of the ER where these shifts are quasi randomly assigned, or at least 
conditional on uh, on a, a rich set of sort of like time and, and hospital fix effects. Arguably, these shifts are relatively random and who you end up working with on a particular day varies a lot. There's a lot of reasons for that. The A big reason is that typical emergency department has about maybe 15 physicians on staff at a particular in it, like in a year. And they have to fill a schedule of like having two physicians in the ER at any point in time, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. So that's just like a big challenge getting that schedule filled. And so there's just a lot of kind of randomness in, in how things get matched up. So then the idea is given that nature of the of the workplace, we can sort of leverage the fact that who you're working with on a particular Tuesday afternoon is kind of random. Um, we can trace out how your behavior changes across different Tuesday afternoons when you're working with different people. It turns out that, that is, uh, there's a lot of variation that I uncover um, in the first half of the paper where it seems like physicians are working quite differently in terms of their speed of care. Uh, the speed of care being a big thing here because in the ER, speed kind of is is a, is a very important metric for under, for keeping keeping the ER running. So then, with that established, I can use the, the, the idea is that well, let's let's take a look at how that change in a particular worker's speed between last Tuesday and this Tuesday when they're not working with somebody different uh, relates to their outcomes. And the nice thing about uh, the data that I was able to leverage is that they are linked to uh, they're linked to death records. So I can see uh, all of the patients that a physician touches. You know, if they have a, an event of mortality in the next however many days. So that, that's the basically, that's the gist of the, the argument. Yeah. So you have already told us that this is uh, the emergency department where there's like an inflow of patients that are coming through the door constantly. There is a number of uh, doctors that jointly uh, deal with uh, this flow. The allocation of doctors to a particular day um, has some element of randomness to it. And this is what you are leveraging and, and uh, you signify that today I may work with you and tomorrow or next uh, Tuesday afternoon, as you were saying, I may work with uh, somebody else. Can you tell us a little bit more about the, the data set and, and the, if you want the, the, the features of this production function, which is obviously what you're estimating in some sense. How does like anecdotally that the production function uh, look like? I think one other thing I should probably mention on the last point was it's also that there is a sense in which the, because this is a very generalist setting, ER physicians have to see, have to be able to see sort of any kind of patient that comes in the door because often they're working alone at nights, especially. There's a lot of room for for essentially, it's not only that physicians are kind of, there's some randomness in who they're working with, but there's also a lot of randomness in what comes in the door on any given shift. And then there's a lot of randomness in then who's, where those patients are being assigned. So it, it just, that's, and that's sort of just part of the job. You know, you're kind of expected to be able to deal with anything. Um, so that's also an important feature that I just wanted to um, mention. Uh, to your point about the production function at a high level, I think most people probably have had a trip to the ER. And I think the UK would probably be pretty similar to the US. So I, I, would, I would be fine with sort of that comparison. You know, you walk into an ER with particular kind of complaint, maybe you have chest pain or maybe you have a, you twisted your, your ankle playing football or something like that. You walk up to the triage center uh, or the triage nurse, and then they, they sort of like assign a, a point scale to you, uh, like a one to five point scale that sort of says how severe your case is, how urgent, more, more like how urgently you, you need to be seen or how quickly we can get you through the door. 
And then you wait around in the, in the waiting room for a while until, uh, until there's a bed available on the other side of the door, you're walked back there. At that point, you're assigned to a particular physician in, in most cases, most hospitals. And that physician is going to be in charge of your care in terms of the orders of treatments, taking your history, you know, or at least digesting your history. They might, they definitely work with other mid-level personnel. So there's a lot of physician assistants that are, um, that are in ERs as well as uh, nurses, uh, very degrees of, of training. And those people are going to be involved in the care as well for a particular patient. So as you're sort of, as you, as you, the patient are walking through this uh, emergency care stay, you're going to probably see the triage nurse. You're going to see a couple of, you're going to see maybe a nurse or a PA on the other side of once, once you're in a bed, and you're also going to see the physician a few times as they're kind of collecting information from you and chatting with you about uh, what the issue is. If you're in a state where you can, you can chat and the, so the, the physician is ultimately in charge of any sort of treatment choices that are made and is ultimately responsible for your outcome. So if you were in the U S in particular, if, if, uh, if you were to make a complaint of malpractice, you would do that against the physician that, that treated you. Uh, and so they have a lot of responsibility over that, uh, over your, your outcomes and your treatment they take on. Um, and then once you're out the door, either they're going to discharge you to home in, in the vast majority of cases, or they're going to maybe admit you to the hospital. And in either case, they're going to give you sort of a discharge plan. So they're going to tell you, you know, here's a sheet of information about your, your visit. Here's what you should do next. A lot of times that'll involve a lot of times with the discharges. So people that are sent home, that'll involve like a, a, you know, a couple of phone numbers of doctors to call up next to, to follow up with um, that are in like the outpatient setting. Those are people who, who then are going to sort of help you monitor whatever situation is going on. So a big part of the emergency physician's job then is to like connect you to good resources that you can use on the outside um, and hope, hope that you, um, that you are compliant in that. Um, although obviously there's a lot of concern about that. That stuff as well. That's not in the not in the paper, but um. so you are going to have a data set that comes from, uh, if I understand well, from New York State. Uh, it has lots of hospitals, so millions of cases. For every patient that arrives, you know who the physician in charge is, essentially, and you know who else was on duty at that point in time. That is, you don't know the identity of the peers. And then you are going to run two regressions because, uh, as we were mentioning earlier, you are using uh, the peer effects as an instrument to uh, estimate the effect of medical outcomes on intensity of care. So the first regression is going to be of intensity of care on the identity of the peers, and the second of medical outcomes on intensity of care. What is the measure of intensity of care that you use here? Because the peers, I can imagine that, well, whether it was somebody called Smith or somebody called Johnson that was on duty at the same time, that, that is easy to understand. The medical outcomes, you were mentioning earlier that ideally you have a mortality, you know? But uh, what is the measure of intensity of treatment? Yes, so, right. So nice feature of, of the data that I'm using is that it encompasses at the end of the day, my sample has like 140-ish hospitals, covers, I think, 17 million patients, which is a lot broader than more bespoke data sets that people get. But it's it, it often comes with the limitation of going with these state databases often don't have sort of super detailed measures of, of intensity of care. They will publish things like the list charges of a case, which is sort of a, which is what most people have used as a proxy for uh, intensity of care. That's sort of like adding up at the hospital, you know, within the hospital and saying, okay, well, we did an x-ray, we did 
a CT scan. We did some other diagnostics. It took a couple, we had to call in a specialist or something like that to check it out. And so overall, we're going to list the charges for this case as whatever, $2,000. Those dollars don't necessarily always correspond to like dollars that are billed. And so, you know, it's also doesn't, it's not, it's not intuitive in, ter- in terms of like, it, it doesn't mean the same thing across hospitals because there's a lot of different inflation factors that hospitals use. That's fine if you're sort of, and I'm, I'm, I actually leverage that, that information a lot in the paper as well. But the, the key thing that I wanted to do in this paper that was, uh, that allowed both the construction of the schedules. And so figuring out who's on duty at a particular time was to leverage uh, and to, and to measure um, the key sort of input that I'm focused on. On, which is the speed of care that's going on. So the key inputs to figuring out what the how, how fast people are working is uh, is timestamps, uh, and so. It, in New York State in particular, we were able to get good information on the timestamps that delineate when a patient arrived at the hospital and when they were discharged. And those serve as a key way of measuring the speed of care. And that's the main measure of intensity. So intensity of care is how quickly they got rid of you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That must mean that is obviously correlated with the diagnostic tests, because if they have to do an X-ray, they have to keep you for longer. The data set that you use, you said like millions of observations, lots of hospitals. It's it's a great data set along, I mean, many in many ways, but obviously, as I just mentioned, one of the dimensions in which it is great is that it has millions of observations and lots of hospitals. The the trade-off that comes from there is uh, you mentioned the fact that you don't have that many variables in which you can study what actually happened there. An additional drawback will be that because it is so many hospitals, you don't really know at a narrow level what is going on in every one of these uh, emergency departments. No, You are running a regression of intensity of care or uh, the length of stay on the time fixed effects, okay, which, uh, as you said earlier, a Tuesday afternoon, if, if you want, on presumably the individual fixed effects of the doctor, okay, because you are measuring the same doctor when the doctor is uh, affected by different peers, and then the peer fixed effects, if you want, uh, which you call uh, the, the group match effects. Now, one thing that you were mentioning in the intuition earlier is that the way that the peer effects work is that there is some doctor that may be very competitive, uh, presumably competitive in terms of quantity, so in terms of uh, wanting to deal with the patients very fast. And when that doctor is affected or gets treated by the presence of nearby really competitive doctors, then these competitive spirits spare on, uh, she may work even faster and so on. So that's one story. There are alternatives too, which are I'm amenable to. So something like when when there's a really fast doctor that comes in, the, the moral hazard story would be, oh, well, now I don't need to do quite as that. Now I can kind of take my time if I don't care about my social image with that other doctor, right? And that's fine too, yeah. That's right. But what I want to emphasize is that presence of the other doctor cannot come into the production function rather than through the you know effect on the behavior of the doctor that gets treated if you want and as it happens i was last week in the emergency department oh no yeah <laughs> and, uh, doing research <laughs> for this i was reading the paper i was a uh, i was myself you know going through the process and uh, one thing that that happened uh, to me is that the the doctor that was looking at me was not a uh, you know had some doubts was not completely sure about what to do about the issue that, that, that she was uncovering and she asked 
for the input of her colleague. Therefore, her colleague also directly entered into my production function because the colleague provided his advice about what to do with me. That would be something that, if it was like widespread, would be a problem for your identification strategy. Is that correct? Yeah, that's that's certainly a concern for if you think about me estimating a production function in this paper, it's it's like I, I yeah, I, I rely on an exclusion restriction essentially that those other doctors don't don't enter the production function in a direct way. So yeah, so that's a, that's an implied assumption. I think that like my overall take on, you know, most of the docs I talk to, they don't really rely on that much help, that much of a helping hand from others. Could be in certain cases they do, could be in, in particular the cases that I'm really focused on that they do. Uh, and I take that concern pretty seriously. So I, I don't want to jump ahead too much, but you know, there are, yeah. So one thing I did to sort of take a look at that was let's see if we can construct, say like the quality of a particular physician. Uh, and then if we can do that, we can construct the quality of your coworker group and see if say there's some spillover parameter that we can estimate that, or we'd see if the, 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 the effect that in this sort of IV regression that excludes that quality measure, if that is mediated by including so, some rough metrics for the quality of your peers. I don't want to, as I said, this is like millions of operations, 140 hospitals. So it's not really realistic to understand the exact rule of allocation and production function, because in any case, it may vary across hospitals and everything. And many of these things that I'm mentioning, it's not that I think that they are widespread, but I'm trying to think about what would be the things that we might be worrying about. And another issue that came to my mind is in terms of the time controls that, that you have. So you control for, as you said, a Tuesday afternoon. Because obviously, if I work every Friday evening in the emergency department, and you also do, then it may seem that I am slower on Friday evenings or faster, I don't know, because I am next to you. But it's actually that I'm dealing with a lot of drugs or, you know, the inflow of patients is very different. So, so therefore, you control for like the interaction between uh, day of the week and hour of the day. Okay, which gets rid of this issue. But I'm thinking about Christmas, for instance. So Christmas is not captured by these uh, time effects. And uh, it could be that certain doctors are more likely to work in Christmas and therefore together, maybe because they're not Christian or they have this, they don't have families or whatever reason you might have preferences like that. Would that be something that, again, is a little bit of an issue for misidentification? Yeah, there are definitely things that are that I leave out of this kind of like trying to be exhaustive in the control set and holidays included. Uh, that's a funny anecdote because, okay, so so just a little backstory. So my dad was an ER doc. And so I sort of got a lot of institutional knowledge uh, just through growing up around the dinner table, hearing gory stories of whatever happened that day. And he would he would always work the Christmas shift because it paid double. <laughs> and he was sort of in charge of some of the staffing and it was hard to get people to work it. So he would he pretty much universally was on the Christmas shift. So that's actually an example where, yes, there is some sorting and, and the types of patients that are coming in on Christmas are pretty different from the types of patients that are coming in on Christmas Eve, even. You know, th to the extent that there, there are other like other ways of sort of in, trying to accommodate those, those stories by including holiday by hospital fixed effects or something like that. I think that I, I don't know if I actually ever really tried that, but there's certainly there's room for these kind of these kinds of concerns. I have I've mentioned Christmas, but I struggle to think of other examples other than Christmas, you know, and once you run your regressions of being of, of observations, 
and uh, you have very big effects, it's impossible that the Christmas effect will be behind everything, you know, but I'm just thinking of a flavor of the things that you will worry about. One thing that you have not mentioned in terms of like the institutional description is what is the allocation of a patient's to doctors. That is, if uh, there's a triage, but uh, if this was like a call center, typically there will be like a, like a queue of calls and whoever becomes free next gets allocated the, the caller at the front of the queue. Uh, is this the best way to think about the emergency department as well? I think it's a pretty good approximation of what's going on in the ER. I've done some work with other hospital, um, with like specific hospital data. Um, so that from institutions where I know the uh, inner workings a little bit better. So not on this giant 140 hospital uh, data set and where the, the sort of variables are a little bit more fine grained. So we can like actually, the, the whole purpose was to try to get a better understanding of the allocation mechanism. Most of the allocation is explained by the relative caseloads of the doctors who are on duty at a point in time. So if Dr. A has four patients, Dr. B has three patients, I would bet a dollar that the next patient is going to be assigned to the, to the second doctor. So this will be four patients open. Yeah. So it kind of, you could kind of think about it. Yeah. I think, I mean, a very rough, you know, mental model of it is the, you know, doctors have like a set of beds that they're responsible for. This isn't literally true, but it, it is true in some hospitals, but not, not across the board. Um, but they would have like a set of four beds that are, um, that they're responsible for. These are in like different pods in the backside of the ER. And if a bed is empty, that's where the next patient is getting assigned. There are cases Certainly, and Dave Chan has a lot of good work on on this in, in a particular setting. He's he's got a couple of papers that are uh, based in a, a particular ER setting where there were some changes in organizational design where they allowed doctors to pick the patients versus having the triage nurse assign the patients. And so I think there are like people are definitely playing around with how these things how allocation happens in the ER because there is the sense of we could leverage a lot, we could do a lot better in in, in terms of assigning patients. I think that's the cut that's still kind of cutting edge. Uh, and then for a lot of hospitals that are sort of just, you know, kind of mid-sized hospitals, which constitute the majority of my sample, and they're kind of just in, in a community, they're not teched up necessarily so high. they're not, they're they're not teched up maybe just for resource constraint reasons or just because there's not a great obvious solution for how to better allocate patients and so they kind of rely on uh, what seems to be more of these kind of what you were talking, describing as the call center way of of allocating uh, the next person in the queue that implies that we don't really have to worry about the cream skimming that uh, some doctors may be able to extract on their less fortunate colleagues that is if I'm like really good at getting the easy cases or the, the hypochondriacs or, you know, or the people who <laughs> take care of themselves and, and, and you are not so much, then you may be uh, performing differently when you are with me, not because you work longer or less long, but instead because the selection of cases that you get is different. So uh, as a first yeah. approximation, we shouldn't really be worrying about that too much. I think so. I, mean, I, th I still think that's a really interesting thing to understand. And I think there's, a, I mean, there's just a lot of interest in that kind of in that kind of cream skimming behavior in healthcare in general, to the extent that I have tried to, to, to understand whether that's going on, it really doesn't seem like it. So, you know, the, the data that I'm working with in New York, and then these other data sets that I've worked with in, in, in other hospitals, you know, they have a lot of information about the type, the type of patient that a given patient is on intake. So, you know, what their complaint is, 
if they're coming in for something that's dementia related or coming in for something that's you know something that you could maybe think about a doctor wanting to cream skim from what i've been able to tell like there's not a whole lot of evidence of selection on those pretty you know pretty wide set of observables that seems to be happening in any systematic way and in particular in this setting you know you could kind of think well maybe some doctor you know dr a is really um good at uh or maybe dr a tends to sort of treat a lot of uh, a particular kind of patient. How much does that really change like in practice when they're working with Dr. B versus Dr. C? Probably not that much, mostly because the flow of patients into the, into the ER is so kind of random and haphazard. Okay, so after we have discussed every possible violation of the fusion restriction, you run essentially at two stately squares. Typically, we go first to the first stage, right, uh, which is the regression of length of stay, intensity of treatment on these uh, peer effects, you are going to estimate essentially a very long set of uh, effects, one for every match between a specific doctor and a peer or, or set of peers. How much power is there in this initial regression? That is, how much can you predict whether a specific doctor works longer or less long, depending on who she is with? Can you give us a flavor of whether the first stage is uh, is strong or not? A couple of points on this. First, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of the a lot of the hospitals in in the sample that I'm I'm studying have only maybe 10 to 15 physicians available to them to staff the ER for a year. So there is a lot of repeat interactions. So there's a lot of times when I will work with the same set of peers. Usually that set of peers is just one other peer. Sometimes it's two other peers and occasionally it's three other peers. The so so there is a lot of actually there's a lot of repeats and you and for some of those pairings you see a, a given doctor working a lot of cases. That said, there's also a lot of pairings that are un, that are infrequent so, for instance, if you've got one doctor who specializes in weekend shifts and another doctor who specializes in weekday shifts, uh, which is fine in my sort of econometric strategy, they're never going to really interact. Maybe they overlap on one or two shifts. For those guys, there's there's no real hope in uh, in figuring out whether they speed up or slow down as a result of working together. Uh, we have this independent variable, which is the fixed effect of that pair. And this independent variable is going to take value zero in millions of observations. If it takes value one only, in a couple of observations, we don't have enough statistical power to precisely estimate that effect. Exactly. Yeah. And so I, that's for that reason, I focus on pairings that I observe on. So pairings being a, a doctor working with a specific set of other doctors on at least 50 cases. So in that sample, there's there's still tens of thousands of those cells in the data. And in it, it you know, focusing on that set of cells, uh, there is a lot of power in terms of how much those are predictive of, of a doctor's speed. As we were mentioning, this is like a somewhat unusual paper about peer effects. Typically, the literature on peer effects has studied the effect of working with people who are more productive than me or working with my friends or things like that. Is there something that you can also look, even if it, even if it is not the main objective of the analysis that you can find in your data set? Yes. Somewhere in the middle of the paper, there's kind of that auxiliary analysis, which would be sort of the, which tries to speak to that uh, personnel literature a little bit more closely. It's pretty simple. It's just saying, okay, well, we've estimated all of these match effects, which are essentially how much physician A speeds up or slows down when working with this other group of physicians. 
we can relate those estimated match effects to observable characteristics of the, the peer group and maybe interactions of the observable characteristics of that peer group with the physician's characteristics themselves. So, you know, if I'm a slow guy and I'm working with a bunch of fast guys, is that different from when I'm a slow guy working with a bunch of slow guys versus a fast guy working with a bunch of slow guys, et cetera. I do some analyses along those lines just to sort of suss out whether to what extent the sort of patterns of behavior that I'm uh, uncovering here comport with what has been shown in the previous literature on peer effects. And to a large extent, there is some, one of the focal parameters of the peer effects literature has been, if you put somebody with a 10% faster coworker, how much do they speed up or slow down? Um, and the, the sort of meta-analysis finding on that is that putting somebody with a 10% faster coworker leads them to leads a given worker in many settings to speed up by about 1%. So this is true in, say, like I think like envelope stuffing experiments. This is true in like the grocery store example where Enrico Moretti and Alex Moss uh, studied cashiers. It's true in some other settings. Um, and that for whatever reason, that seems to be like the, the parameter value that comes out in a lot of a lot of workplaces with this kind of social where there's some sort of um, social design. One thing that I, I find in, in my analysis is that actually in this setting, it seems like that's about right for, for ER doctors as well. So putting an ER doctor with a 10% faster Peer, peer group leads them to speed up by a little bit over 1%. Very good. Now, again, two stage squares. First stage, intensity of care on the peer effects. Second stage, medical outcomes, mortality rate on the predicted intensity of cares that comes exclusively from who you happen to work at a particular time. What is the effect that you estimate between mortality rate and the additional or lower length of stay that has been exogenously created by the presence of specific peers? The headline finding is that putting somebody, speeding a doctor up via this peer effects mechanism by, say, 10% leads to a significant reduction in mortality over 30 days among a group of patients where mortality is a relevant outcome. So again, sort of hearkening back to what I was talking about towards the beginning, there's a lot of cases where mortality is not really an outcome of interest. Somebody that comes in, you know, hopefully, you know, you look like you're alive and well after your ER visit, probably mortality was not on your mind when you went in. Somebody who rolls their ankle while playing football or something like that, uh, not really at risk. So this is focusing in on this set of patients where, where they have a predicted mortality rate over the next 30 days of something like 4%. So in that group of patients in particular, it seems like this, this extra peer-induced speed up is actually leading to really negative impacts on, on survival. Good. So there are two possibilities then. You were saying at the beginning that the literature, that it comes mostly like from cross-sectional estimates, has found that there is not a lot of or not statistically significant uh, relation between intensity of care and medical outcomes. You are finding that there is. Therefore, there are two possibilities. Number one is that you have estimated this better uh, using this exogenous variation uh, that has come from the complicated exercise of the peer effects. Number two is that for whatever reason, New York doctors are different and uh, for them, it happens that they are not in the flat of the curve. Do you have any type of analysis that allows you to understand whether it is indeed being able to estimate these things better rather than something specific about your sample that is uh, leading you to finding this relation? First of all, I think the, the target parameter here is a slightly different from, from one of the literatures that I mentioned at the beginning, which is this cross-sectional literature, right? So the cross-sectional literature is, is interested in making these flat of the 
curve claims based on whether a different doctor who tends to spend more has better outcomes than a lower spending doctor. So uh, I want to sort of emphasize that the target here is thinking about given, you know, within a physician, getting them to speed up or slow down has, you know, I'm, I'm sort of interested in the effects of that, uh, that kind of variation. And that's a slightly different thing than, than understanding whether a fast physician, a physician who's fast in general or high, low spending in general produces better or worse outcomes. So that's one thing. The, uh, the second literature, you know, sort of going back to this, um, these, a lot of papers that have explored what changes a given provider's behavior or given hospital's behavior. I think it's often the case that they're I would, I would argue that they're probably generally not that powered up. So like their first stage uh, per se, the first stage F statistic per se is, is not super high. And then looking at mortality, when you only have a first stage F stat, that's you know marginally above like the rule of thumb of 10, it's just kind of hard to get a, a really a precise enough estimate on, on something like mortality in, in a lot of cases. And, and, you know, there, and there's just maybe more interesting things to study in those settings where people are, or, or the questions are just slightly different. They're just not targeted so specifically at, at understanding the, the quality consequences. Great. So this exercise seems great. It is also uh, a little bit complicated in that you are estimating like uh, thousands of PRFAs and all these I asked you earlier what was, as a first approximation, the, the rule that allocates cases to doctors. Um, and you said, as a first approximation, again, it's 140 hospitals, so we don't really know, but as a first approximation, let's say random. So I was wondering whether they could be complementary or uh, if you want, like, alternative to use an instrument uh, for this intensity of care along the following dimension. So imagine that I am a doctor with a particular characteristic and I have a patient that comes through the door with a characteristic that I really like. Let's say that I'm a Valencian doctor and the person that comes in happens to be Valencian rather than, I don't know, let's say Catalan. But now I would going to provide the Pfizer treatment for this patient, whereas relatively, not absolutely, but relatively, I will not so much you know, for, for the Catalan one. Now, you just said, or you said earlier, that the allocation of a particular patient to a particular doctor is, broadly speaking, exogenous. So if that is the case, and we believe that a heart attack is a heart attack, or, uh, you know, like a asthma is asthma, or, or whatever, regardless of whether it affects a person of a particular characteristic or ethnicity or not, controlling for some other observables, you could have used the exogenous allocation of uh, patients to doctors as an instrument as well. But did you ever consider that or you think it's a terrible idea? Oh, no, I think that's a great idea. Like, I, I think it's really important to understand that relationship, uh, the, the cross-sectional relationship, because it just informs, uh, it, it speaks to this, this long literature that we have of documenting these things and doing it more and more in a way that's, um, that's you know, up to the whatever the current econometric standards are. So, yeah, so actually at the end of the paper, um, I come back to that sort of, that way of thinking about it and say, okay, well, we do know that, uh, or, you know, the, this argument somewhat rests on this idea that that, that, that um, controlling for, say, the time of day and interacted with day of week and other stuff like that, that there is conditionally random assignment of patients to providers. And so, well, what if we did this? What if we looked at this sort of cross-sectional relationship of physician intensity of care on outcomes? Are is it true that in this setting uh, in New York across these 140 hospitals that faster physicians tend to produce similar outcomes to slower physicians? That would be in line with 
with this whole body of literature from the Dartmouth Atlas and et cetera, um, and work by Joe Doyle and, and John Gruber, um, looking at hot and um, Sam Kleiner and um, and John Graves, looking at hospitals with that treat patients more intensively, and a number of other a number of other papers that I'm I'm not going to be able to mention here. Is it true that that faster physicians produce worse outcomes? That would be kind of consistent with this idea that I'm already finding in the in the within physician design, or is it true that the alternative, this uh, this cross-sectional relationship is flat, right? So faster physicians don't provide any worse care than, uh, than slower physicians. And so the, the finding there is actually that things line up quite similarly to how they line up in the Dartmouth style facts. So the, the, the idea that these cross-sectional differences don't actually, in intensity of care, don't map to changes, uh, differences in, in, in quality. So that, that's kind of a striking finding in contrast to this uh, this within physician peer-induced speed-up uh, design, and then sort of it it begs the question: Well, what's what's the what gives? What's the difference? Um, and then I sort of posit a couple of uh, of ways of thinking about that that line up with the, or that are sort of inspired by some other health economists who have sort of thought about this very deeply and. and- so there's an interesting body of work that's looking at sort of these physician provider, I'm sorry, patient provider matches. So uh, along observable dimensions. So you mentioned, you know, whether the patient is Catalonian or not. So there's there are papers that sort of look at whether there's a concordance between providers' identity, let's say race or or where they're from, and the patient's identity in the same dimension. Try to look at whether there's better care provided. I think in general the the idea there isn't so much to get at whether more care is better or anything like that, but rather to understand whether say like communication is better and that leads to better outcomes. So I think that that's, um, that's been the spirit of that literature. And I think that's probably for good reason, you know, it's just kind of like it, it, it would be hard to argue that the natural story for why maybe in the U S let's say black patients fare better when they have a, a black physician is perhaps due to, you know, things about just being able to communicate better with their physician. And that, so that speaks to like, Marcella Alsans in that literature, uh, as well as a number of other uh, scholars. Very good. Thank you very much, David, for coming to the program. Thank you so much. My guest today has been David Silver. My name is Jordi Vanessivitar, and this is the Visible Hand podcast. Please visit our website, thevisiblehand.uk, for links to the other papers that we discussed. Introductory music and logo by Aitana Blanesiso, episode produced by Anderson Tang.